Would you please grab your copy of God's Word this morning and turn once again to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. We'll hear now the word of the Lord this morning, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, thus far, God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing upon the preaching and hearing of it. Our gracious God and heavenly fathers, we come to hear your word this morning. We pray that through the preaching of your word, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly so that we would have insight, knowledge and understanding so that we would be protected and guarded from the false teaching that fills this world in so many different areas and comes at us from so many different directions. May we put on the mind of Christ. May we be renewed in your word. So instruct us by your spirit this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, My dad gave me and my siblings a food test. And I bring this up because in many ways, Jesus has given a food test uh, two different times just before this. And now the results of the test are playing out. When my dad gave me and my siblings this food test, the reason he felt he needed to administer this test was because every time, every time he came home with some treat or snack, he would set it down on the counter and it would be gone before he got back to enjoy it himself. And he didn't even get his fair share. So one day, he brought home a treat that looked like, keyword, looked like delicious cookies. And sure enough, he came back to the kitchen a couple hours later, and they were gone. So my dad asked what had happened to his cookies. And my my younger brother, my little brother, fessed up to eating the cookies. And then my brother went on to give his review of these cookies. And he said that they tasted, and I quote, terrible And my dad said, they tasted terrible because they weren't cookies. They were dog food. So stop eating my treats without my permission. And I was very thankful that my brother helped learn that lesson for me, okay? He he beat me to it. And so he paid my, my dumb tax for me. Well, here in our passage in the Gospel of Matthew, God has given a food test to his people through the miracles 
that Jesus has just performed. Because just prior to our passage, if you look back, chapter 14, chapter 15, Jesus, two different times, has miraculously fed a crowd in a desolate place with almost no food to speak of. And they were satisfied, and then there was an abundance left over. And each time Jesus did this, it was meant to help the people make a connection. It was meant to help them make a connection and see that Jesus is doing what only God has done already in the past, and he's doing things that only God can do. That's what they're meant to see. That's, that's the sign. And whenever God fed his people in the Old Testament, it wasn't just a sign, it was also a test. It was a test about their thankfulness. Would they give thanks to God, live gratefully, or would they continue to grumble that he didn't give them enough? Would they trust him as their faithful provider, or would they continue in unbelief? Would they see that the physical food also pointed to spiritual food, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, And would they trust God for that spiritual food or would they go to the spiritual food that the nations around them were handing out? So God's physical provision of food was not just a sign, but was also a spiritual test. And in our passage, what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna show how various groups of people have uh, done with that test. And by showing us how these people have done and responded with that test, Jesus is gonna help warn us against the various dangers that would hinder us from learning the lesson that the food was meant to teach us. And so as we walk through this passage, we're gonna look at three dangers that Jesus calls us to guard against so we don't miss the sign of the food and the test of the food. So first danger that we need to guard against is the danger of missing God's sign, of missing what these signs are pointing to. And we see this danger in verses one through four. And verse one records for us another instance of a delegation of religious leaders who have come to confront Jesus. So this is the first people that we're gonna analyze how they did with the test. But this delegation that has come to confront Jesus actually stands out above the rest of the times that Jesus has been confronted because it includes the most unlikely of alliances. Look there in verse one. It's an alliance between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now to give you a little background, these are two groups of people that cannot stand each other. They are diametrically opposed to one another. They, they're never in the same room together. And yet, you're meant to be shocked that you find them here together in unity confronting Jesus. They have different views of God's law and how it should be interpreted and applied. They have diametrically different views about how the nation of Israel should relate to the Roman authorities that are over them politically. And then they have very different theological views. In fact, in Acts 23, I believe it is, Paul is on trial. He's being persecuted for preaching the gospel and it's it's getting out of hand. So he actually uses the theological differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees to pit them against each other so that he can basically escape. And he says to everyone, I am on trial here because I believe in the resurrection. The reason he does that is because the Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in angelic or spiritual beings at all. And the Pharisees do. And so Paul wisely, cleverly pits them against each other. And so you can think of it like this. The Pharisees are the conservatives. They're the fundamentalists of their day. And the Sadducees are the liberals. They're the the compromisers, as it were. And if you need a a mnemonic device to help you remember this, tell my kids that the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Okay, if it helps, 
keep it. If not, you can throw it away. Just, just pretend I didn't say that. Well, despite their serious disagreements and divisions, they have come together under the banner of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You've heard that statement. And you know it must be a bad enemy if it brings two other enemies together. And that's in, in part what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see that the hostility towards Jesus is increasing. The opposition is growing ever more higher such that it brings two opposing groups together in unity to confront him. And this is also meant to serve to remind us that Christ, when he was on this earth, he did not win any popularity contest. He was not you know, just well-received by everyone in culture that they thought, wow, your, your views just really fit in here and, and we really enjoy all the nice soft things that you have to say to us. No, when he walked this earth, it was opposition, it was confrontation. And that's also, in in part, what we should expect as well. If we're expecting this warm reception from a culture that just says, oh, everything you guys believe, we we just embrace it. We love it all. This is great. Oftentimes, faithfulness to Christ means being in opposition to the culture around us. Following Christ in this world is often an uphill walk and an upstream swim. We need to remember that. Oftentimes you talk about the culture wars and we need, to, we need to win the culture war. We need to be, and that's not what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to be faithful to him despite however the world may perceive us. Well, looking at the second half of verse one, notice the specific mission that has brought these two opposing groups together. They've come to test Jesus. They've come to test him by demanding that he show them a sign from heaven. And this is only the second time in Matthew's gospel that this idea of a test for Jesus has been used. The first time was in Matthew chapter four. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes to him to test him. And by repeating this idea of a test coming to Jesus, this is Matthew's subtle way of showing that the religious leaders are like their father, the devil. That they're coming not with a genuine question hey, please show us a sign we want to know who you are. They're coming, as Satan did, not to seek Christ, but to subvert him and to sabotage his mission any way they can. Their request for a sign is about as genuine as the spam email you receive from the the crown prince of the, the king in Nairobi who has now inherited millions of dollars and wants to help you invest it for him. That's how genuine their request for a sign is. Because think about it. What has Jesus been doing up to this point? Sign after sign after sign. What more sign do they need? He has cast out demons. He has stilled storms with a word. He's given sight to the blind, the lame to walk, restored limbs, and he's healed unclean diseases with a touch or with a word. The signs are everywhere. So Jesus sees right through it and he calls out their hypocrisy in verses two and three. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What Jesus is doing here is he's showing that they are perceptive people, that they can see certain things, but the things that they can see are things that ultimately don't matter. They can see the temporal, trivial things like how to read the weather, right? But they are blind to seeing what God is doing very clearly right in front of their faces. So they can tell the weather. They have this memorable saying at the time. It said, red skies at night, shepherds delight. Red skies in the morning, 
shepherd's warning. So they have these basic intuitive skills to look at things around them. But they cannot see that in Christ, the fullness of time has come. Because God has sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, who is doing things that only God has done and can do. That the kingdom of God has drawn near. And that the long-awaited Messiah is right in their midst. And why is it that they cannot see? Why can they not see this? Well, Jesus answers that question at the beginning of verse four. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He gets to the heart of the matter. They do not have an eyesight problem. They can see what he's doing, but their heart does not want to see what what he's doing. Their hearts do not want them to see the meaning of all these signs. So in one sense, they cannot see because they do not want to see. He calls them adulterous. Okay, if he wasn't popular with them before, now, now it gets even worse. He calls them adulterous because their demand for a, a sign actually reveals a heart that is in a spiritual sense demanding a new spouse. Think of, of the way that God related to the Israelites in the Old Testament. He said, like in Ezekiel 16, I was like a husband that came to you, that betrothed myself to you, that that purchased you, made a covenant with you as a husband makes a covenant with his bride. But Israel is unsatisfied with their husband. They They don't want anything to do with him. And so in their hearts, they've already decided to nullify this marriage and go after other gods or to, you know, just worship themselves. And so what they're doing is not seeking a sign that would tell them why they need to remain faithful to him. They're seeking for an excuse that can show how they can justify their leaving this heavenly husband. That's why he calls them evil and adulterous. And at the end of verse four, Jesus promises that there will be one more conclusive sign that he is going to give them. And and before we mention this sign, note that if Jesus did answer their request for a sign right then and there, do you think that they would buy it and believe it and that it would cause them to repent? Well, the answer is no. Because in Matthew 12, another delegate of religious leaders comes to him and they've seen the signs he's doing. They don't dispute the fact that he's doing them, but they say that the reason you're doing them is because you're casting out demons by Satan, that Satan is empowering you. So even if they saw them, they would justify them uh, some other way. Well, Jesus says another sign is gonna be given. One more single sign is gonna be given. The end of verse four, he says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And the sign of Jonah, something that Matthew has already referenced, Matthew 12, when he's arguing with the religious leaders, he mentions that the son of man is going to give the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So the sign of Jonah is shorthand for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is the one single, conclusive, all-encompassing sign that he is going to give the world. And the reason he calls it the sign of Jonah was because the story of Jonah is like an Old Testament prophecy in picture and story form. There's two ways that God in the Old Testament predicted the coming of Christ. In some ways, it was direct prophecy. The virgin shall conceive, she will bear a son. That's direct prophecy. But then there's picture forms like the Passover lamb, like the temple and the tabernacle. Well, the sign of Jonah was prophecy in story form. And here's how Jonah pictured the coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Just as Jonah was delivered from certain death as he sunk 
in the sea. So would Jesus be delivered from the throes of death. Just as the great fish could not contain Jonah and spit him out onto dry land, so the grave would not be able to contain Jesus. Death's claim on Jesus would have a limit of three days, just as Jonah's time in the fish was three days. But unlike Jonah, here's where Jesus stands out as the the one greater than Jonah. Unlike Jonah, who ran from God's mission for him, Jesus willingly came to accomplish his mission. And unlike Jonah, who languished in the belly of the fish, powerless to save his own life, Jesus had authority to lay down his life and his authority to take it up again. Jesus gave us this sign of Jonah, the sign of his miraculous, unstoppable life and of authority over death, so that we would believe in him and by believing have life in his name. That's the sign of Jonah. His death and resurrection is the sign that God has given to the world. Every other sign really points to this one. And this is the one important, all-encompassing sign. No more signs are needed. No other sign is more important than this sign. The whole history of the world hinges on the sign of the resurrection. And the whole history of your life, from the moment you're born to eternity, hinges on how you see this one sign, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the religious leaders, they saw this sign. They were one of the ones, early ones to discover that the tomb was empty. And did they see the sign? Well, they saw that it was empty. But what did they do? They paid the guards to spread a report that someone had come and stolen the body. You know, this, was, this was fake news network kind of starting out here in first century Jerusalem that they spread a false report about why the tomb was empty. Well, the most important question that any of us can wrestle with revolves around this great sign that God has given us. Why is the tomb of a man who claimed to be God, who was publicly crucified, why is his tomb empty? That is the single most important question that any person can wrestle with. The meaning and the answer to that question is the most significant thing that you could ever discover. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, speaking about the resurrection, speaking about the empty tomb, said that this empty tomb is a fork in the road for every single human being. It goes one of two ways. Either Christ has not been raised from the dead and then nothing matters. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or, here's the other fork in the road, Christ has been raised from the dead, and nothing matters more than this reality and living in light of it. So do you see the life-altering, eternity-shaping significance of this sign above all signs, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Do you see what Charles Wesley put And that Easter hymn, death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise, lives again our glorious king. Where, O death, is now thy sting? Do you see the reality of the resurrection, the sign of Jonah, in such a way that it actually shapes how you live your life today? Or do you struggle to see the sign that God has given us by raising his son from the dead? Because the resurrection of Christ isn't just a sign that we need on our deathbed when we die, just you know, make sure that it's in our back pocket, we can pull it out, something happens. It is the sign that helps us see everything else rightly every day. And it's a sign that helps us live differently every day. For example, when 
People tried to cripple you with a fear over sickness and virus and disease and death. Remember the sign. Christ is risen. He has defeated death. He has delivered us from the fear of death. Christians should see everything through the sign of the resurrection such that there is no fear of death in us. And when people try to tell you that electing this or that candidate will either usher in a utopia or a dystopia, remember the sign. Christ is risen. He reigns on the only throne that matters. He will put all his enemies under his feet. He will rule over the ends of the earth. He will usher in a new heavens and new earth. And no election, no matter the outcome, no election, no matter the outcome, will alter that one single bit. You need to remember that every four years, every two years, okay? So seeing this sign, the empty tomb of our victorious Savior, helps us see everything else every day rightly. It helps us live differently. So we need to see God's sign. Well, the second danger that we need to guard against is the danger of forgetting God's works. The danger of forgetting God's works. And this is illustrated for us in verses 5 through 10. In verse 5, it's pointed out to us that the disciples, they forgot to bring any bread for their journey. So we've been talking about bread. Jesus has done miracle signs related to bread. And now we have bread forgotten. And perhaps they came to discover this because one was hungry and asked the other one for bread. And then the other one realized that he thought someone else was responsible for getting the bread. And everyone thought everyone else was responsible for bringing the bread. And when everyone thinks everyone else is responsible, nobody's responsible. You're without bread. And it's likely that Jesus overhears them talking about this because he, he starts to, to respond to them. And he hears them talking about their need for bread and that they don't have it. And so while they're thinking about physical bread, he takes the opportunity to bring them to another level and think about spiritual bread. So in verse six, this is what he says. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're gonna look at what that means in detail in our next point because he repeats in verses 11 and 12. But notice how they respond to what Jesus is saying and how their response shows that they miss completely what he's trying to do in this teaching. Verse seven says, and they began discussing it among themselves. So they, they hear what he says and they, they have their own little delegation and discussion. What do you think he means? And then they say, we brought no bread. And what I think this conclusion comes from is that they have interpreted Jesus as saying that they need to boycott bread sold by Pharisees and Sadducees. They're still thinking about physical bread. Their minds are, are stuck on what their stomachs are hungering for. And so they're thinking that they have no bread. They're, they're in a you know, kind of strange place. And now they have two new groups of people added to the banned bread maker list. They can't buy from Gentiles, they're thinking, because that's unclean. And now they can't buy from any Pharisee or Sadducee bread shop. And so this creates a dilemma for them. And so I think, you know, they're, they're throwing up their hands. They're saying, well, if we can't buy bread from Gentiles and from Pharisees and Sadducees, we have no bread. What are we supposed to do? And what Jesus is doing here is he is cleverly exposing how much they still think like the religious leaders. The religious leaders, in their minds, view everything externally. Their religion is a religion of externalism. And they believe that what you touch and what you eat defiles you. Remember in Matthew chapter 15, 1 through 20, that's what they're doing. You didn't wash your hands. You can touch things, it'll make you unclean. 
And so that's the wavelength the disciples are thinking on as well. So Jesus is exposing for them how much they think like the, the religious leaders. And so when, they are, when they're saying we brought no bread, they're saying, you know, if we, can't, if we don't defile ourselves, I guess we're going to have to starve. We're going we're to go hungry because all we have is unclean bread. And I couldn't help but think how we even as Christians can still think along the same wavelength today. That we can often look at things from an external religion standpoint and treat them as if that external thing will make us clean or unclean, depending on how Christian it is. For example, I remember when Target came out with their, their bathroom policy to accommodate transgender ideology. And then there was this big push from the conservative Christian world to boycott Target. Because Target has this bathroom policy, can't shop at Target anymore. If you want to be faithful to Christ, you've got to go to Walmart now, Okay. And Target was this unclean place. Or with Starbucks. Starbucks came out in support of same-sex marriage. And Christians were supposed to find clean coffee beans somewhere else. Those were unclean coffee beans. Well, if Target has a good quality product at a good quality price, you are free to buy it. That's not compromise. That's just good stewardship. If Starbucks has delicious, rich coffee, you should buy coffee from Starbucks. Now, don't buy their ideologies. Don't buy the worldview that often influences some of the things they do. But shopping there or not shopping there doesn't make you clean or unclean, righteous or unrighteous. As Paul would say, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, the kingdom of God is not a matter of where you shop or what bread you eat. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's an internal matter. So don't think externally. Well, before Jesus clarifies the spiritual point, he first addresses the irrationality of their physical concern for physical bread. Because remember, as they interpret him, they think, we're going to starve. We have no bread, and now we can't buy it anywhere. And Jesus, knowing that they're worried about their hunger, says this in verses 8 through 10. O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? You see what he's doing here? He takes them back. He retraces their steps and he shows them where they have just come from. Remember when there was not just 12 hungry, grumbling men, but 5,000 and 4,000? Remember how little food there was? What did I do? I fed them. They were satisfied. You collected so much more than we even started with. Oh, you of little faith, do you not see that I am the Lord, your provider? I am in your midst. When you are with me, you are not going to go hungry. The disciples are acting like Israel of old. God brought them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're hungry. God rains down bread upon them. He provides for them. And it's not but a few days later that they are whining and grumbling that they are begging to go back to Egypt because at least when they were slaves in Egypt, they had a good menu, some good food to eat. And the disciples are grumbling that they're gonna go without bread, even though Christ has demonstrated that he can turn stones into bread. And so the warning for us is found in those opening phrases, verse nine. Do you not perceive? Do you not remember? They They have forgotten so quickly, so soon. And how easily we as Christians can empty our mind of what God has done for us and start filling our mind with thoughts of what God hasn't done for us or what he might not do for us in the future and how that sets us off in so many different directions. 
When we grumble, it's because we have forgotten what God has done for us. And when we grumble, we are telling God, you haven't done enough for me lately. Or when we're filled with worry and anxiety, it's because we look to the future and we think that God might not do it again for us in the future. We, we tell him that we don't think he's going to come through. And this is why we need to guard against forgetting God's works. We need to take the psalmist's advice in Psalm 9-1. We need to recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Recount them over and over again. It's amazing to see how many psalms are just songs recounting Israel's history that they sang over and over to remind themselves of what God had done for them. How many of their feasts were a recounting of acts of God in their history? to anchor them in his faithfulness. And so for Christians, we need to have our head on a swivel. Christians need to have our head on a swivel where we look two directions. We need to first look back and stoke the fires of gratitude in our hearts by reminding ourselves of God's past faithfulness. And then from there, looking at that, we need to look forward in hope to the future, knowing that his mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. His steadfast love endures forever. That his past faithfulness is an indicator of his future faithfulness to us. But too often our heads, instead of being on a swivel, are are rusted and stuck in this great and terrible and overwhelming now that stares us right in the face. And it feels so overwhelming that we immediately go from that and we jerk our heads toward the future and we project out this overwhelming now into a dark, bleak, and dreary future. It's just going to go on and on and on. And yet, in those moments, the Lord is saying to us, Oh, you of little faith, do you not remember? Do you not perceive how I have been faithful to you? I have provided for you. I have demonstrated my faithfulness to you. I mean, I think every time that I find out we're having you know, another kid, I have that moment of panic where I look forward to the future and I think of this overwhelming now and then just add another kid. You know, there's this one comedian who said, you know, what's it like having multiple kids? He's like, well, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. That's what it's like to have a lot of kids. And yet each time the Lord has been gracious, he has provided, we're still, we're still here this morning. And so I'm sure you can do the same recounting in your own life for what it may be for you. We have to have our head on so look back at what God has done, looking forward then and hope to the future of how he'll continue to demonstrate his faithfulness. On another note, looking at the disciples, how Jesus has to come to them again and again and say, do you not perceive, do you not remember? That should encourage us and it should cause us to be patient. It should, it should encourage us to know that when we look at the disciples, it tells us that we are not the only blockheads on the block, Okay. They're just as hard of understanding and slow to learn as we are. And yet, Christ was patient with them. He was gentle with them. And that, yes, we are forgetful. We miss the lessons like they do. We're slow to to learn what we should. But it doesn't mean we need to beat ourselves up. We need to be crippled with guilt because we just don't get it. Growth in grace is a process. It is not an event. And he who began a good work in them and in us will bring it to completion. But then on the patient side, it should cause us to be patient with others. Grace often works very slow. It often works very even imperceptibly. And our job is not to tell people how slow grace is working in their life or how imperceptible it is, but to be an instrument that seeks to, by God's grace, be used in his hands to cultivate that grace, to to bring it out so that they do grow in knowledge. So we need to guard against the danger of missing 
God's word. Well, finally, we need to guard against the danger of corrupting God's word. The danger of corrupting God's word. And this is pointed out in verses 11 and 12. So verse 11, Jesus moves them from the physical realm, which, you know, he dresses momentarily, but now he goes on back to the spiritual realm and he repeats what he already said in verse six. How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Get off the physical level. Then he repeats it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then verse 12 helps us kind of understand, gives us some commentary so we know what Jesus is speaking about. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So when the the nation of Israel was on the eve of leaving Egypt, of of departing and and exiting from there, they they had to leave in such a hurry that they're supposed to have, you know, their cloaks on, their staff in their hand, and they could only eat unleavened bread. They didn't have enough time to allow the leaven to work and, and grow and rise because they had to leave in haste. Well, in commemoration of this event, every year they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in preparation for that feast, they had to go throughout all their houses and purge all of the leaven, take out any leaven they could find, get rid of it all, and they had to start with a whole new batch of bread completely separated from what they used to have. And in and through this, God was telling them that when they left Egypt, they were to also leave all of the leaven and influence of Egypt behind as well. All of their practices, all of their teaching, they need to leave it behind and they need to come out from them and be a whole new batch of dough that lived in a new way under a new king with with new rules and uh, new ways of thinking. And so they kept doing this every year to remind them Leave the leaven of Egypt behind. Leave the leaven of the nations behind. And now here Jesus is saying, there's gonna be another separation. The king is here. He's starting a new covenant community. And you have to leave this old leaven of the ways of the Pharisees and Sadducees behind. You have to come out from them and be a whole new batch of dough. And this concept of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it illustrates very nicely how the word of God in every single age is always attacked on two different fronts. It's either attacked by adding to it or on one side by subtracting from it. So even when God was preparing Israel to enter into the promised land, Moses gave this commendation. Take the word of the Lord as it is. Do not add to it and do not subtract from it. And he repeated that multiple times in Deuteronomy. And that's what Jesus is saying here as well. Don't let the Pharisees add to God's word and don't let the Sadducees have you take away from God's word. So the Pharisees, they represent the danger of adding to God's word. These are the conservatives, the fundamentalists, who believe that the way to preserve the purity of the faith is to to protect it with all these extra rules, all these extra rituals that you have to go through in order to be separated from the world around you that would compromise you. And in Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis calls this Christianity and. Christianity and something else. It's not enough to be a mere Christian You need to add something else to Christ, to your Christianity, to be a real faithful Christian. You need to be a Christian and a social justice warrior. You have to be a Christian and you have to vote Republican. You have to be a Christian and you have to have accepted John Calvin into your heart. You have to be a Christian and you can only shop at Hobby Lobby and you can only eat at Chick-fil-A. That's that's a faithful (laughs) Christian, right? Not at Target, not at Starbucks. And the list could go on and on, really could which is why one of the questions we always need to be asking ourselves is in what ways 
Are we in danger of corrupting God's truth by adding something to it? By adding something to it that we think is as essential as what is written in here? It's a good question to ask. But on the other side of the issue is the Sadducees. They represent the danger of subtracting from God's word. And this is best represented by the idea of of liberalism, theological liberalism. And liberalism, as opposed to legalism, tries to preserve the faith by conforming it to the culture. So legalism says to preserve the purity of the faith, we need to be as different from culture as possible and set up all these barricades. And liberalism says, if you don't conform or adapt and evolve, you will die off and become extinct. So we, we, need, to, we need to conform to it in some shape or form. And so Christianity and liberalism is viewed as a slab of Play-Doh. You, you plop the Play-Doh down on the counter and you can shape it and mold it however you want. And you know it, this, this circular... Slab of Plato has to fit in this square peg. And so what you usually have to do to fit in there is you have to cut and adapt and mold it in certain ways. And so what you inevitably find is that to make Christianity fit culture, you have to do a lot of trimming, a lot of cutting away of things that are not palatable, are not acceptable in the eyes of the world. So eventually what you get is a gospel that goes something like this. A God without wrath saved a people without sin by a savior without a cross and an empty tomb to live a life without any loss. That's kind of the gospel you get when you start subtracting things away from it. So another question we need to ask ourselves, there's two ditches, right? We need to ask ourselves is in what ways are we in danger of corrupting God's truth by subtracting from it? What things are we, are we finding unpalatable, just inconvenient that we, we think we should do away with because that would make it easier to stomach? So what are we adding to it? What are we subtracting from it? Well, let me close with how J.C. Ryle sums up this warning from Jesus and this counsel to us. He says, against both errors, we need to watch and pray and stand our guard. Let us not add to the gospel to please the modern Pharisee, the legalist, and let us not subtract from the gospel to please the modern Sadducee, the liberal. Let our principle be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Nothing added to it, nothing taken away from it. So guard against the danger of missing God's sign, guard against the danger of forgetting God's work, and guard against the danger of corrupting God's word. Let's pray.